and welcome back to the Football Outsiders Fantasy Podcast. I'm Scott Spratt, your host and a writer for FootballOutsiders.com. Later on in this episode, we're going to talk about uh, the top wide receivers in our Kubiak preseason projection system, kind of following up on last week's episode with Mike Clay, where we hit on all of our running backs with one stat per player. But first, we have an interview with Scott Barrett of Fantasy Points. Really interesting conversation about the types of players you should be targeting in your draft this season. Okay, joining me on the uh, podcast today is Scott Barrett, a fantasy analyst for a relatively new fantasy football outlet, Fantasy Points. Scott, thanks so much for joining me. Hope you're doing okay today. I'm doing good. Thanks for having me, Scott. Excited to to be back talking to you. It's it's been a while. It has been. I'm glad to as well. Thanks for joining. Uh, I mean, I think you're probably most known for your DFS work, and we may touch a little bit on that today, but you've been writing a lot of interesting articles so far in the lead up to this season about upside players and just kind of draft strategies in general that I think are really well-timed for this time of the year. So I wanted to get into some of that work with you. Um, I think it'll help people make good fantasy football drafting decisions over the next couple of weekends. And I think it's fair to say that a theme of these articles is that high-risk, high-reward players are really more important or more valuable than low-risk, low-reward players. Can you explain why that is? Yeah, so it's uh, just fantasy football follows uh, the Pareto principle, power law distributions, uh, where you you think of league winners or you think of the teams that are going to typically win a league uh, in a given year. It's not the team that drafts a bunch of uh, values, a bunch bunch of good but not hyper elite ADP beaters. It's typically the teams that just correctly – land the, the right one, two, three, four, or five guys, or really one or two or three guys. Um, like, here's a stat from last year. Teams that owned Christian McCaffrey had a higher win rate than teams that owned Michael Thomas, Chris Godwin, and Derrick Henry. And that's best ball where bell cows are devalued. And that's best ball where, you know, Chris Godwin getting hurt at the end of the year didn't matter. It's just, you know, the, the, the full uh, 16 weeks. Yeah. And it's just like, it is what it is. And, and, and people think that a player's floor is like 0.0 fantasy points, but that's just like not true. And it's like not the right way to think about it because we do have that waiver wire. We do have players on our bench. Um, I mean, quarterback in particular, you can just by streaming, you can cobble together low end QB one production uh, off of the waiver wire, depending on league size. Uh, so that's your real floor, which is like another reason why, you know, don't go after the the quote unquote safe pick, really draft towards upside, lean towards upside. Uh, you want to be a home run hitter rather than a guy who hits just a bunch of singles and doubles. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I bet a lot of people listening to us probably have that sort of just like natural guess for a player like McCaffrey or say a player like Lamar Jackson, who was a later pick last year that, Oh yeah. Like if we landed that guy, that was going to be a a league winning type of selection. But I found it interesting that you pointed out a couple of running backs who I think of as being kind of similar, but one being much more successful than the other for team success last year, James White, who you identified that about 8% of drafters won their ESPN leagues if they drafted him whereas Austin Eckler, 35% of his drafters won their ESPN leagues if they drafted him. Um, obviously, Eckler had the better season, but I'm curious if entering the season, were there signs that we should have been looking for that maybe Eckler was the one that had the chance to be the breakout player? Uh, 
Uh, so this is this is sort of tough. The reason why I was so hard on James White was because, uh, you know, people a lot of people hyped him up as this amazing pick because, oh, look, he finished, you know, seventh in fantasy points last year, but uh, he's being drafted as the RB16. So that's just like incredible value. Uh, but you, you really need to look at the particulars of the situation. So he averaged like 26 fantasy points per game when both uh, Rex Burkhead and Sony Michelle were hurt. And then when either one was healthy, he averaged only like 12 fantasy points per game. And any running back's going to smash when there's two running backs ahead of them uh, injured. They're going to mm-hmm. be thrust into like a great uh, hyper-valuable role. Uh, but I mean, we, I think we've seen enough from James White over his, what, seven-year career to know he's not an upside guy. Uh, Eckler's, Eckler's tricky, and yeah, post-hindsight, it's maybe a little bit easier, but but pre, pre-hindsight, ex-ante, he wasn't really a player I was on. My, my reasoning was, okay, Melvin Gordon holds out. He's not going to hold out the full season, uh, and at a certain point, he's going to come back, and that's going to be a committee, and it's going to cap his upside, make him highly game script dependent, highly volatile on a week to week basis when it matters most, which is the fantasy postseason. He ended up being a smash home run pick. He was given a bell cow workload while Gordon was out. Only Christian McCaffrey averaged more fantasy points per game. And then Gordon came back and he still ranked top five in total fantasy points. Uh, He did that on hyper efficiency, pretty good game script. Los Angeles was a lot worse than people thought. We know Philip Rivers likes to to highly uh, to, to target his running backs, but really just hyper efficiency. He in each of the past three seasons, he's by my data one of the top three most efficient running backs by expected fantasy points. He's really good. He's just just really good. Um, but you kind of need that. You need that hyper efficiency for from a guy who's going to be in a committee. There's no other way they're going to finish you know anywhere near as highly as Eckler did without it. Um, so ex ante, I don't know that he was just like, we should have known. Uh, but I, but I do think, you know, ahead of James White for sure. You know, it almost seems like the takeaway from that would be that Eckler was potentially going to be a white type of player this year, a player that maybe we were going to be overdrafting because of that success last season. When in fact it was, you know, when Gordon was out for the first month and that's also when Justin Jackson, I think had a hamstring or ankle injury or whatever it was and missed some time too. And if that was Boeing as overall fantasy success, that could have made Eckler the same type of player who's like overall numbers were a little bit boosted by an unrealistic scenario, except that as it turns out, Gordon is no longer there and Eckler may in fact be the lead back for the Chargers this season. So do you, do you think Eckler is somebody that we're overdrafting as say a borderline you know, round one pick in PPR formats? Um, yeah, so you can read my, my article where I just break down uh, all the running backs I'm drafting and, and in what order, and that's going to be in the bell cow report. And if you just look mm-hmm. at the Eckler blurb, it's by far the most words I spend on any running back. So it's just like clear. He's someone I really struggled with. Uh, it's just so hard to argue against him. Uh, the OC Shane Steichen said, uh, uh, he thinks that he says it's going to be, he's going to get all three running backs involved in, in uh, each, each week's game plan, which like you hate to hear, but at the same time, like I don't know why you don't give him a bell cow workload. He's I, like one of the best pass catchers uh, in the league. He actually 
Uh, just last season, his yards per route run average was the second most by any running back in the PFF era. Highly capable runner, but like that's where the league's trending is in the passing game. So like I, if I have a running back, like I, I'd rather him be better in the passing game than in the running game. Uh, it, it's just it's just tough. It, I think I think if you subtract five carries, maybe it's maybe it's six carries per game, uh, seven carries per game from. Alvin Kamara. And then I think that's Austin Eckler's floor. Mm -hmm. And then really we're just bickering over, okay, does he average um, six rushing attempts per game, which was after Melvin Gordon returned, or does he average 14 carries per game, which is what he saw in the first four weeks? Or is it somewhere in between? Because, you know, Joshua Kelly is not Melvin Gordon. Uh, So he's someone I really struggled with, but, but I, I think I have him RB 12 in my rankings. Yeah, I, I totally get your consternation there. I think that we have him 10th at Football Outsiders in PPR. But yeah, it's a situation where being in that format, PPR specifically, is kind of what is boosting him. I actually found it interesting that uh, we're thinking of Eckler as having a dramatically better season last year than White did. But they actually had about the same number of opportunity-adjusted receiving touchdowns, 3.3 for White, 3.4 for Eckler. But Eckler scored eight real touchdowns versus White's five as a receiver. So in some ways, Eckler is probably going to be regressing this season, but in other ways, he may have more opportunities and it may kind of balance each other out, kind of like an A.J. Brown type of situation. So, Yeah, I'd, I'd like to just just uh, follow up with that is, yeah, everything says he's due for regression. Uh, everything says Aaron Jones is due for regression, but that's been true in every single season of their careers. <laughs> so like, I think I think they're definitely going to regress, but I also think – their mean is their efficiency mean is higher than you know just like what you like a perfectly average running back or the sum of all running backs because I do think they are better than much better than the average running back. Um, so last season, his by fantasy points per touch, he posted the second best season by any running back since 1970. Um, nice. He's ranked top three in my differential stat which is just expected fantasy points versus actual fantasy points in each of the past three seasons the most efficient running back by far over this span um yeah he's, he's due for regression but at the same time i, I do think this is uh, a really good really good running back very cool well let's shift focus to some of the players you think may be the upside candidates to look at for 2020 specifically i guess just go you know position by position are there, is there a quarterback or two that you think stands out as a player that has a lot of upside to make him a good fantasy player to pick in your grasp this season? Yeah, so I, I wrote this article in May, and I, I did it by ADP tier for each position. And the early round guy was Russell Wilson. The middle round guy was Daniel Jones. Uh, the, the late round guy was Ryan Tannehill. And these are like three guys I've just completely walked back on. Um, <laughs> just like Russell Wilson, it's like... Why wouldn't you just, you know, go less run heavy? Like, it makes no sense to me. You have a top three NFL quarterback, just let him eat. That's really all it takes. And, you know, Pete Carroll is, is, you know, responding to hashtag let Russ cook with hashtag pound the rock. Uh, So I just don't think that's going to happen. The middle round guy, Daniel Jones, I just completely soured on. the, The argument for him is like super easy. Uh, 
his Konami code upside is, is getting slept on from, from week eight until the end of the season. He ranked fifth in fantasy points per game, 21.2. He did that, you know, with a decimated receiving core. Uh, he, he hit 32 fantasy points in four of his 12 starts. Only six other quarterbacks have ever done that in the history of football. And he did it as, as a rookie. Uh, so that's like a sky high upside there. And he did it in a shortened season as well, which is just crazy. Uh, but at the same time, like, I'm just like, I, I even was talking to, uh, Rich Rebar and Curtis Patrick about this earlier in the week. I'm, I like this is how bad it's gotten with me second guessing Daniel Jones. I was like, which would it be crazy to have Drew Locke higher than Daniel Jones in my rankings? And like it would. That's the answer. But like I wanted to just like consider it where it's like maybe we're just attributing a lot to Daniel Jones, who everyone hated coming out, that we should be attributing to Pat Shermer, who now has, you know, this super sexy receiving core in Denver. Um but I mean, he's not someone I'm targeting, but he, he's also should be ranked higher than Drew Locke. I mean, do you, st- you still feel the same way about Tannehill or do you think that he, you were a little bullish on him back in May as well? So, I mean, just his ADP right now, QB 17, QB 18 is just like stupid. Like you and me are both regression guys, but we're getting a little carried away with the regression. I mean, he led all quarterbacks in PFF grade last year, led all quarterbacks in passer rating. Uh, he ranked behind only Lamar Jackson in fantasy points per start and fantasy points per dropback. What do I think happens with Ryan Tannehill? Yeah, I don't think he repeats that. But like, that's way more baked into his ADP. What's his ceiling? He already showed it. Like top three, <laughs> everything goes right. Do I think everything is going to go right again? Probably not. But I mean, like, who knows? Maybe maybe Arthur Smith is just like the next genius offensive coordinator. Uh, A.J. Brown makes a big step forward. Johnny Smith takes a big step forward. Corey Davis finally figures the NFL out. I don't know. But just a, a massive value. And I think we're sleeping on his upside because he showed us his upside last year. See, with Tannehill, he's the one that I probably disagree with the most. And it's you're right that the ADP obviously is including an expectation for regression. Again, he was what the second best quarterback for a stretch of time last season in fantasy and is now the 17th being drafted. It sounds a little crazy, but a lot of his success were things that I find particularly unsustainable. Uh, Things like play action, passing deep success, things Mm -hmm. like uh, his receivers, they finished second uh, with yards after the catch 6.2 average last season behind only the 49ers. Uh, His receivers had the biggest surplus in receiving touchdowns over opportunity just a touchdown. So a lot of, you know, a lot of players that are sort of succeeding regardless of Tannehill in my mind, do you sort of see it that way at all? Or is this, this these are things you think are like being appropriately captured by his ADP or maybe even too much. So. Yeah, I, I, st- I still go there. Um, I mean, like you raise great points and I agree. Those are all things we should be regressing, but again, you're regressing from second all the way to his ADP of 17th. That just feels a little too crazy for me. And there's like other extenuating circumstances. Like, again, these are a lot of young, talented receivers who can take a step forward. Uh, The the offensive coordinator, like I brought up, um, could go more more volume heavy, more uh, more pass heavy. Also, Tennessee didn't even entertain the possibility of signing a Rivers or a Tom Brady. They were all in on Tannehill from the start. They like this guy. They think he has a lot of talent. Um, And again, it's just, you know, it's it's hard to argue against regression because I think it happens, but it's also hard to argue against just 
second in fantasy points per start versus 17th and ADP. Yeah, I mean, you're not at, you're not arguing against regression. You're arguing against how much regression the market is applying to Tannehill. You just think it's too much. I think that's a totally fair thing to, to say. Uh, let's shift over to running backs. Are there any running backs you consider to be sort of the high upside guys you want to target? Yeah, so, so when I wrote this article, it was... Uh, Clyde Edwards Hilaire was like a big stand up standout as, mm-hmm. you know, smash home run upside guy. Took him every chance I can get in round two. Before the uh, Damian Williams opt out, oh, I was yeah. taking him top 12. Uh, so like I, I was already crazy to begin with. And then, you know, he opts out and it's just like, all right, home run. So don't need to dive too deep there. Uh, Kenyon Drake was being drafted in the second round. I, I also thought that was uh, a mistake. Like with, Tannehill, you know, just look at what happened once he landed in Arizona. You know, he didn't know the playbook. He didn't, there was no offseason with that team. And he was given a true bell cow workload and he was smashing. And we know from Cliff Kingsbury's history in college, he likes to target running backs. He likes to run a fast paced, uh, pass heavy offense. You know, DeAndre Hopkins, Josh Jones made some nice additions. Uh, I think that Kyler Murray takes a step forward. You really need to read the bell cow report because again, this was this was May, and then you know I I, I updated it, but um, also talk about Latavius Murray, just a guy I mm-hmm. think uh, I, I don't really draft handcuffs, but I, I think you know easy top five upside if Alvin Kamara misses time. We, we've seen that from Sean Payton before. I think uh, so. So Murray averaged thirty four fantasy points per game when Kamara missed time last year. Kamara averaged 37 fantasy points per game when, when Mark Ingram was suspended. Um, so I, I think there's a good chance he gets a, a valuable bell cow workload yeah. uh, and could be a top five fantasy running back. And we're going to circle back to some of your bell cow work in a little bit, but let's go ahead and finish up your position upside picks. Uh, go ahead with some wide receivers that you like this year. Yeah. So I, another guy I've sort of soured on uh, Odell Beckham Jr. I just like, all right, if you if you tell me that last year was um, just all due to the sports hernia injury, which he suffered uh, in the offseason, and another uh, it, the, the injury compounded, there, he picked up more injuries, it got worse, um, then, like, why isn't this guy being drafted top five? You know, in his worst 16-game stretch with the Giants, still averaged 18 fantasy points per game averaged 20.6 throughout his, his prior career. Um, but an issue for me is like you, you listen to the Cleveland beat reporters and they're just hyping up Austin Hooper. And I feel like if they're hyping yeah. up Austin Hooper, it means like Odell does not look like 2018 <laughs> Odell, which means uh, he, he's, he's not really a guy I'm, I'm focusing on anymore. Um, but yeah, I, I, I talked about Deontay Johnson and Hollywood brand who have just two easily of my highest owned guys um, also hyped up Adam Thielen, Calvin Ridley kind of soured on him, but like the upside case for him is easy. Antonio Brown is like another must draft uh, Deshaun Jackson. Another one. I mean, there are a lot of those guys that I agree with in particular, like, uh, like I, Adam Thielen's a guy that I think is, is worth a lot. Um, Calvin Ridley, I actually still quite like quite a bit. I think we have him either 10th or 11th at the position this season. Deontay Johnson, we agree with him. Like we have him several spots ahead of ADP, but I did want to ask you about reasoning here. 
uh, this is something you cited. It's something that I think I've cited and I've seen other people cite this offseason that Johnson led wide receivers in average separation yardage, according to next gen stats last season. And I just wanted to sort of ask you, this is a relatively new stat. Um, and I, obviously it seems like having the best is the best, right? And that's a good sign for his fantasy value. But like, do you have any thoughts about that as a stat? Like, I think I've discovered some more context, but just kind of want to get your thoughts on it. Yeah. So I I actually think that's not a good stat when people Mm -hmm. cite it. Uh, If you look at the the list of the top, you know, 15 guys, it's Deontay Johnson and then all slot wide receivers. And that's not a coincidence. That's a function of route type, route depth. But the thing is Deontay Johnson's not a slot wide receiver. And then you look at PFF, PFF has the same data, and I actually trust them a good deal more than I trust NextGen stats with, with this stat. Uh, and he led all non-slot wide receivers. He led all uh, wide receivers with an dot of nine or higher. Um, Michael Thomas was the only guy who came close, and like he runs more shorter routes and has a lower dot. Um so I like to see that. Also, like if you're next gen stats, like I don't know why you haven't, you have both of this data. I don't know why you haven't invented it yet, but the best stat would just be, you know, route adjusted average mm-hmm. separation. I don't know why you haven't done that yet, but like literally give me that. And you're basically telling us who the best wide receivers are. Yeah. Okay. So we're definitely on the same page there. I think, but this is good information. I think for everybody listening that just kind of blindly assumes, oh, being more separated is better. It does seem highly correlated with the depth of target. And again, like you said, not necessarily just whether they're in the slot or not, but yeah, Johnson, like there's some really good receivers that have high average separation, Robert Woods, Cooper Cup, uh, Christian Kirk, but there's also guys like Albert Wilson, Nelson Aguilar, Geronimo Allison, Deshaun Hamilton, who lost his, his job this season. Just guys that, again, running those quicker routes rather than deeper routes. Whereas guys like Kenny Galladay, Mike Williams, Terry McLaurin, really good, but running deeper routes seem to be the ones that have lower average separation distances. So interesting there. Um, okay. Yeah. And then let's close it up here with the high upside tight ends that you like this season. Uh, yeah. So I wrote up again, it was tiered uh, and it was early Tyler Higby, middle Rob Gronkowski, late Gerald Everett, super late Will Disley. Um, you know, I think Disley, it's, it's obvious, you know, in games he started and finished, he averages 15 fantasy points per game, which would have ranked third best last year. Like, I mean, like he's had some bad injuries. Do I think this is likely? Probably not. But I mean, like the upside's obvious, uh, Gronkowski, you know, it's sort of the same thing. It's like, Hey, if, if this is 2018 Rob Gronkowski, it's probably not. But if it is, then you're drafting like a top three tight end, you know, tight end 11 overall but Tyler Higby to me is the most interesting player in fantasy right now I just think this is like so fascinating where okay at the tail end of last season he did something maybe like no other tight end has ever done he just absolutely smashed uh, led the league in receiving yards exceeded 100 yards in four or five games uh, just absurd and then what did he do for the rest of his career he exceeded 50 yards just twice. Uh, he averaged <laughs> yeah. 4.6 fantasy points per game across his previous 15. Gerald Everett was out targeting him like seven to one. Uh, it was just, so it's like, he is the ultimate drafter upside guy or like uh, the ultimate Rorschach test or litmus test of like how, how risk averse uh, of a drafter are you? 
I, I outlined it like this where, okay, let's say there's a 20% chance he is who he was at the tail end of last season, a, uh, and an 80% chance he scores zero fantasy points. Like it's not obvious to me that he's a bad pick at ADP. Yeah. Maybe, maybe 30, 70, whatever, whatever. But it's, it's just like, I don't know. You get, you get what I'm trying to say. I do. I mean, I think it's the examples you provided kind of illustrate this perfectly. Like if Will Disley is going to be the 30th tight end in ADP and is a guy that if he is healthy, probably is going to be in the ballpark of a top 10 option for you at the position. It just tells you the depth is there that you do want to make those big swings of the position where there's so much waiver wire depth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to me that there's sort of a common thread among a lot of your upside options that like they have exceptional levels of performance over partial seasons. So Daniel Jones and Tannehill, whether or not they're still quite there for you, both of them from like week seven on through the rest of the season were near the top of the position in fantasy points per game. Kenyon Drake from week nine, when he showed up on the Cardinals to the end of the season, 19.9 fantasy points per game. Devontae Parker, uh, 17.5 over the latter half. Higby, week 13 to the end of the season, 21.4 fantasy points per game. So is this a situation where you think the the fantasy market, like the draft ADPs, are systematically undervaluing these types of players? Uh, Yeah, I don't really know. But I think this is just a function of, of how I look at the game because of, like you said, I'm a big DFS guy where there tends mm-hmm. to be seasons within a season. Like you can break up the Los Angeles Rams season into like thirds. Like first they were, uh, you know, Gurley was heavily evolved and then they just kind of neglected him. And then the tail end, they went super too tight end uh, heavy. Uh, you, you'll see this on the defensive side as well, where it's like, oh my God, Oakland is just a sev deep. Uh, they're, they're just getting hammered. Uh, by the deep ball every single week. And then what do they do? They, they change their scheme. They keep a, an extra safety back or whatever it is. And then you can't, you can't exploit that anymore. So you have to be really in tune to that. But I think some of them are obvious where it's just like, just look at what Drake did in a Cardinals uniform. Like that's what matters. Like throw out the rest of, of his season. It, it's irrelevant. Uh, same thing with Higby. We see the upside because, you know, they did go super too tight end heavy and, and he smashed. Or maybe it's just because, you know, Gerald Everett was hurt. But um, it, it is important to, to look at things in this way. I don't know if it's something, you know, I'm actively trying to, to exploit, but, but I, I do think of things that way. Yeah, to me, there are a couple of different considerations that sometimes it's kind of hard to disentangle in this situation. And I, to try to illustrate that point, I just kind of want to throw out a stupid hypothetical, which is like, if you only looked at single game performances the top 30 fantasy wide receivers from last year based on their best game. Like Will Fuller had the best game in fantasy last year. Sammy Watkins mm-hmm. had the second best game. You've got Marvin Jones, <laughs> Christian Kirk, Deshaun Jackson, John Ross, Rashad Perriman, all these guys in the top 30. And I think yeah. you would in- instinctively be like, well, yeah, small sample size, bro. Like obviously single game performances aren't going to tell you like what, who should be the best fantasy options for you the following season. But like, is there a line to you? Like, if one game is too few, somebody like Drake maybe has half a season. Is like a half a season kind of the, the mark you're looking for? Or is, is there just, is there more complication to this than, than I'm kind of illustrating here? Uh, so I think what you're saying is absolutely correct. I think it's an Adam Harstad line where he's like, splits happen. Um, one of my favorite stats a few years ago was, 
Uh, Odell Beckham Jr. averages 8.7 fantasy points per game more in odd number weeks. Mike (laughs) Evans averaged 6.9 in even number weeks, whatever. And it's just like you could find – it it could be all noise and you could just find, you know, these incredible, you know, splits if if you go out looking for it. But it's it's really just all noise. Um, It's tough. I mean, this is is what we do. This is fantasy football. Just like a a lot – there's just a lot of noise and maybe it's more art than science, or it's just, you know, trying to find more nuance and depth. But um, I mean, I, I think it matters. But again, it's also not something I'm like actively trying to, to exploit. And I don't have like a great rule of thumb. Yeah. Yeah. But to me, this makes sense. I think it's both an art and a science. It, you kind of reminded me of a mm-hmm. funny trend that I've seen online before, where it's like, take something that you want to find a correlation to, like, say it's Odell Beckham's fantasy points. Mm-hmm. You can find something random like, oh, Odell, Odell Beckham's points correlate with the like, prices of crude standard oil uh, barrels (laughs) in the United States. Mm -hmm. And it's like, Oh my God, like clearly when the, when standard oil is going up, you've got to invest in Beckham in your DFS lineups. Like that means he's going to have a bad year this year. It's obvious. I mean, I hope that that's not like a relevant (laughs) thing to Mm -hmm. deciding what makes him in fantasy. And it, it kind of stands out to me that the players of yours that you think of as like the upside targets you want, the ones Mm -hmm. that I tend to agree with the most tend to be the ones where I can identify the reason. And it's it's really less about, say, how long they sustained their excellence last season, but whether or not I see like a role change, for instance. Mm-hmm. Like Tyler Higby is somebody that is a great example. I read his increase in, in targets per game. It was like more than tripling from week 13 to the end of the season. I read that as something of a role change where, you know, McVay was a traditionally sort of a, an 11 personnel guy, didn't really rely on his t- tight ends a lot. Gerald Everett got hurt and then Higby saw that in- increase. So I think a lot of the people that see him as not a fantasy value of the season are saying that, well, hey, Everett's going to be back. But in my mind, Brandon Cooks is the one that, that got replaced um, by, you know, like the lineup replacement there with, with Josh Reynolds. Reynolds is really more of a replacement level talent. So I think Higby is going to get an opportunity increase kind of in line with what he saw toward the second half of the season. So Higby is one of those guys that I'm like, yeah, I see what you're saying there. I agree. But maybe somebody like Daniel Jones, who... Granted, he didn't play the first few weeks, but there's no real role change here. Like he was the starting quarterback last season. He's the starting quarterback again this season. Some of his stats that I'm seeing regression for, that's going to really play more for him because it's it's the regression that's going to play the bigger role than any type of like opportunity changes. Do you, you sort of see what I'm saying? And do you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. Well yeah. said. Okay, cool. Kind of along those lines, it's interesting to me that you're drawing this line of the upside plays being the way to win your fantasy leagues. And the natural like next step for me is going, Oh, you know, who has the the greatest upside usually relative ADP is actually injured players. Uh, And some of those guys like Adam Thielen and and Will Disley, you pointed out as values, but I mean, I could hypothetically build an entire team full of injured players from last season. And you can sort of see how this could end up being a really good team in fantasy. You know, you could go Alvin Kamara round one, Adam Thielen round two, Todd Gurley round three, Le'Veon Bell round four, James Conner round five, Evan Ingram, A.J. Green, Will Fuller, Carson Wentz. Those guys are all players we think of as being really, really good when they're healthy. But is that like a, a strategy that you think makes sense? Or is there some kind of like cap to the amount of risk or downside that you want to put on a single roster? Uh, so one of the issues with my article is, okay, every. Most of the people who read it are like, you know what, you're right. We do need to draft more towards looking at upside, the medium projection. Uh, 
the way I put it was a bull case outcome matters far more than the base case outcome or projection, which matters so much more than the bear case projection. Um, So I think a lot of people are in agreement with that, but at the same time, it's like, it's hard to project upside. Uh, And so just looking at what you had, Alvin Kamara, Adam Thielen, Todd Gurley, Le'Veon Bell, James Conner, Evan Ingram, AJ Green, Will Fuller, Carson Wentz. uh, Some of those guys, by the way, you should, uh, to your listeners, read our injury discounts series. I did the statistical analysis and then passed it along to Edwin Porras, who's our uh, resident injury expert, a doctor. Uh-huh. Uh, and so we like worked together to defi- find out who the best injury values are. And there's, there's actually a lot this year. One of them is Alvin Kamara, who I'm drafting top three. I'm drafting him over Zeke. Um, Adam Thielen was a guy he disagreed on. He was like, no, no, no. Based on these injuries, like I, I do not see the upside for, for Adam Thielen at 30 years old. And hamstring is very serious. Uh, Evan Ingram is an even better example. So, so typically coming off of the injury he had, and we saw this with Hollywood Brown, uh, your first year back, those players uh, are at 80% of their career baseline average in terms of fantasy points. Uh, they take a big step back. Uh, so I don't see the upside there is, is what he would say. Um, you could say the same thing for, oh, Todd Gurley, I want absolutely none of. You know, <laughs> you the volume looks good on paper, but based on what he looked like on the field last year, based on his injury, our doctor doesn't think he's, there's any way he gets that sort of volume for longer than just like the first few weeks of the season. But Kamara, Thielen, Connor, love, love Connor, um, Will Fuller's like an ultimate, you know, upside swing for the fences guy. I love Carson Wentz. Uh, so I do agree with a lot of these. So if they're like four or five of those guys that, that I pointed out that you may really like, would mm-hmm. having all of them on your same team be too much risk? Or is that still kind right. of along the lines of what you're thinking is, is sort of the ideal way to do things in a shallow league? Uh, so it does depend sort of on how many bench spots you have or really like the, the quality of the guys on your wa- waiver wire. Um, so if you're in like a super, super deep league, like 16 teams and like massive bench, like I get, you know, a guy like James White is going to have some utility, like all, same for um, best ball, especially best ball. But um, yeah, and like the typical leagues we're thinking of, which is, yeah, like 10 team ESPN league, um, start two running backs, start two wide receivers and a flex one QB. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Just like I'm really going like after like round four, all I'm thinking about is upside is drafting for upside. Uh, but there are different ways you can go about doing this. Like, uh, I, I usually like have a lot of running backs on my team by round six uh, but for whatever reason, the most recent draft I did, I had I took Kenyon Drake and then I just loaded up on the other positions. And uh, it was between Cam Akers and Ronald Jones. And I, I actually like Cam Akers a little bit more. I love his upside. Uh, but I was worried about, I think, like, let's say he's in an RBC for the first, you know, seven games. And then he's ideally the bell cow and a league winner. But I was worried about, you know, getting that production on a week to week basis to start the season at least. So I leaned more towards Ronald Jones, another guy I like his upside, but you see there how I did value um, 
something I typically don't value, which is just like uh, the like like mid range to low end RB two production is like not worth anything at all. The difference between RB twenty and RB thirty is like 0.9 fantasy points per game. It's like nothing. Yeah. Um, and that's what people overvalue. But but yeah, I mean, like for the most part, especially in like a standard league, just just swing for the fences. You're gonna find guys off of the waiver wire, like wide receiver position last year. Uh, AJ Brown, Rashad Perriman, Devontae Parker, DJ Chark, all guys you found off of waivers. You could stream quarterbacks and get QB six, QB seven, QB nine production. Um, tight end. I mean, Mark Andrews and Darren Darren Waller were barely drafted. Just keep an eye on waivers. And like, what, what is what is tight end ten, ten going to do for you? Absolutely nothing. So, uh, really, I'm all in on upside. But I mean, it depends on personal preference, I guess. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you with the strategy. The way that I like to think about this is, I want to be higher risk, higher reward. Either the more surplus of players I have um, for a specific position on my team, right. or the depth of the waiver wire. So, mm-hmm. like. To the latter point with quarterbacks, there's so many good quarterbacks right now that you can find, you know, your Matthew Staffords or your Kirk Cousins just available at any time throughout the season. So with that sort of situation, players like Lamar Jackson last season make a lot of sense to draft because if it goes wrong for you, there's just really not that much cost over if you had taken Matt Ryan uh, or, mm-hmm. or whoever it was and you actually invested that draft pick. So that's one. And two, like from the running back side of things, if I'm only going to have one running back on my bench and I'm going to have to rely on that one player, then maybe James White is a good option for you because you feel pretty confident he's going to play um, and get, give you something every week when you may not be able to find a replacement. But if I'm going to draft three running backs on my bench, I really want to take swings at guys with a lower chance of being a running back two or even a running back one. And you know, if I have three guys with a one in three chance of becoming a running back two in my mind, then hopefully I get one out of those three guys. And that's really worth a lot more than having three James Whites, none of whom you're really going to ever want to play, right? Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it. So let, let's assume you're in a start two wide receiver plus a flex league and you're, the wide receivers you drafted are Tyreek Hill, um, Adam Thielen, Tyler Lockett, and Keenan Allen, right? Mm-hmm. And then uh, who who should your last round pick be? Golden Tate, um, like Julian Edelman. I would rather Antonio Brown. Like who has the best odds of yeah. cracking your starting lineup at that point? And I think it's like, okay, Antonio Brown's not starting for eight weeks, but I think he he's going to give you more value to your team than, you know, like a Golden Tate who like, let's say, even if he gives you like mid-range wide receiver three production, you're probably never really starting him with those stud wide receivers you already drafted. Absolutely. Okay. We've touched on this a couple of different times and places throughout the podcast, but this kind of dovetails into your recent articles about bell cow running backs. And I was curious, like what makes a running back a bell cow as opposed to a committee back in your mind? Yeah. So I, I used to define this very narrowly where it was uh, 66% of the team snaps, 66% of the carries and 66% of the backfield targets at least. And you needed all three of those. And that was a bell cow game. And if you average that over the full season, you were a bell cow for the season. Uh, but I actually don't like it that way. I like, I prefer to look at it on a spectrum. You could do like weighted opportunity percentage, expected fantasy point percentage, 
uh, even just snap percentage, like typically gets the job done. But but I prefer to look at it as sort of a spectrum, uh, taking a weighted average or just an actually just the average of snap percentage, carry percentage, and team target percentage, and then ranking by that where it's like, okay, was Christian McCaffrey a bell cow last year? Yes. Was Nick Chubb a bell cow last year? No. Was Chris Carson? I don't know, more so than Chubb, less so than McCaffrey. Really just like looking at it like that, where I'm not tethered to mm-hmm. a, a very strict definition works for me. But yeah, I look at it like really there's three different types of running backs. There's the bell cow, the committee back, and then the handcuff, which is just like useless, even in DFS in a single week, unless a running back in front of them gets hurt. And then for committee backs, there's t- the most common type of committee backs. There's the workhorse running back who gets like the early down rushing work and then the scat back or pass catching back, which gets the the passing down work. It's like Jordan Howard and Tariq Cohen. It's like Sony Michelle and James White. It's it's uh, this year, I think Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. Um, And so those running backs are going to be highly volatile on a week to week basis. They're going to be highly game script sensitive. They're going to have a much lower ceiling uh, and, and really I'm just going bell cow or bust and like how extreme am I, am I, am I going bell cow or bust? It's I, I'm, I'm drafting, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm basically never drafting Nick Chubb. I'm never drafting Kareem Hunt, never drafting Devin Singletary, never drafting James White, Tariq Cohen. Yeah. And I mean, I think by that logic, you're probably not drafting Aaron Jones or Derek Henry to me, those two plus Nick Chubb are sort of the standout three running backs in ADP that may not fit the like workhorse or bell cow back in your mind, but they both or they all three had a high number of touches per game, even if those were heavily weighted towards rushing touches, especially in Henry and Chubb's case. But they Henry had I think twenty one point four touches per game last season, fifth of the position. Chubb twenty point nine seventh. So that volume of touches that doesn't do it for you as much as having the you know, like all of the types of touches that you could get from a bell cow back. Is that, is that true? Uh, yeah. So you ha- really have to wait those touches, which is what I do. I have a stat weighted opportunity because targets, um, a, a target is worth 3.2 outside of the red zone. A target is worth 3.25 times as much as a carry in PPR league. So, you know, Derek Henry has never reached what, even 20 targets in a, in a single yeah. season. Uh, so that really hurts him. Nick Chubb, I mean, you, you can add it all up. Like Nick Chubb, his volume was basically it ranked eighth most last year in weighted opportunity. So like, that was a valuable role. But you also have to remember that that dropped to like 16th after Kareem Hunt returned from his suspension. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely fading Derrick Henry. I'm fading Nick Chubb. I'm fading Aaron Jones. Aaron Jones especially. Uh, Matt LaFleur said at the Combine, yeah, he wanted to – to draft a running back and he wanted it to be a three-way committee. And what did he do? He drafted a running back on day two, which is crazy. So like, and Aaron Jones, like ready massively due for regression. Um, his best games also came when Jamal Williams got hurt. Um, so just like now a three-way committee, just like, I don't know why you don't just give him a bell cow workload. He's awesome, but, but fading him, <laughs> I mean, Derrick Henry could get targets and he could absolutely destroy me. Um, but no, I don't want him. And, and again, it's just like there, there is a big risk with Derrick Henry that people don't realize. Like Christian McCaffrey can average 
30 fantasy points per game on a two-win team, but Derrick Henry's not getting, not even going to hit double digits on a two-win team. Win team. The team's going to have to lean way too pass-heavy, and then he just basically gets phased out of the offense. What happened two years ago, he got out-snapped by Deion Lewis. Like, what? what? Um, so just a lot of risk, not a lot of upside. Those are, those are guys I'm, I'm, I'm fading. And it sounds like particularly maybe with Henry and Chubb, there may be some sensitivity to matchups there where like maybe if you're in a head-to-head type of format for a full season league, those guys are going to be a little bit worse for you than, um, well, I mean, obviously than McCaffrey, but any player of that ilk who also gets targets. But maybe in like a DFS, you can sort of find the spots where they make the most sense to use. Is is that true for you? Yeah, so there's a lot of guys who are just never draft and redraft start sit maybe draft in best ball and best ball bell cow or bust loses a lot of value. Uh, I, I honestly think the zero RB might be optimal in best ball. I don't, I don't know, but I'm never doing it anywhere else. But uh, yeah, in DFS, these are like a, I love early down workhorses and games. Those teams are, or those players are heavily favored by Vegas. Uh, that is when I'm getting my exposure to them. Marlon Mack. I have never drafted. I never would draft. He's like legitimately one of the worst players you can draft this year uh, at ADP. Uh, but he is like the ultimate get your exposure to in DFS and not in season long. So for the past two seasons, he averages 22.1 fantasy points per game when Indianapolis has won by 14 or more points. The rest of the time, just 10.8. So he's just like, you need Indianapolis to win in a blowout or he's like useless to you. But like people went on drafting him where I would just play him whenever Indianapolis was heavily favored and then he would win me a lot of money and I would never really ideally have exposure to him in those bust weeks. So uh, there's a lot of guys like that. And that's especially Derek Henry and good matchups, heavily favored. That's the time to play him. Not draft. So yeah, if, if fantasy players don't want those players and they want bell cows, how is it that you identify which backs are going to be bell cows that maybe aren't already? Yeah, again, it's, it's a lot of art and science. Um, so one guy I've now soured on is Melvin Gordon. Um, I, I really thought I had something special there because like all the NFL insiders were calling him a bell cow. Ian Rappaport was like, yeah, he's their bell cow running back. They wanted a bell cow. Not a lot of people knew that, but I know that they want a bell cow. I talked to my off the record uh, Denver uh, beat reporters I'm friends with. They all said the same thing. And now they're walking that back. They're just like, yeah, never mind. He looks like <laughs> trash. Uh, you know, they keep hyping up Lindsay. Lindsay looks great. Um, uh, James Conner, it's just, I mean, Mike Tomlin came out and said it. And, and Mike Tomlin's historically a bell cow running back. He doesn't like RBBCs. Uh, Ronald Jones, it's another similar thing. It's like Bruce Arians is saying he's the bell cow. He's saying, we'll see how Ronald Jones looks uh, in throughout the remainder of camp. But right now, he's a lock for the early down role. And maybe, maybe, maybe someone gets the passing down work, but maybe and it's like, okay, that sounds like a bell cow workload to me. And like all coaches lie. Okay. But I don't think Bruce Arians does, or he's like the least biggest liar. Uh, the, the guy admitted to drinking paint. He, he, <laughs> he trashed, he trashed Jameis Winston while he was still on the team and was like, Oh no, we're going after Tom Brady. And uh, the, the, didn't sign. They didn't go after Jameis. They got Tom Brady when the odds for Tampa Bay to, to get Brady after he said this were still 40 to one. He said Chris Godwin was going to catch 100 balls last year. He was on pace for 98. Something similar with Chris Johnson, David Johnson. Like I, I trust him. So, so he's a guy I like. 
Um, Cam Akers, it's just sort of, again, like reading draft capital, reading what, what, uh, the tea leaves of coach speak. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's just, it's art and science. Agreed. I agree with that. And I agree that maybe even more than coaches, sometimes beat reporters can be good sources for this because Mm -hmm. they're less incentivized to tell you like whatever might pump up their own players. Like they'll give you a more accurate assessment of what guys' roles might be uh, when they're figuring it out of the preseason. Obviously a little harder this season. Uh, and then beyond just sort of the, the, the news reporting of this sort of situation, one thing I like to look for are younger backs who have a, you know, like they, they're big enough and they also have a history of catching passes in college. I think is a good way to sort of figure out who are candidates for this. And one benchmark I use is at least 215 pounds and 13% college receiving ratio, which would be receptions over receptions plus carries in college. And it's obviously just like a back of the envelope type of thing, but guys that have historically fit into that bucket include Alvin Kamara, Joe Mixon, DeMarco Murray, David Johnson, and Saquon Barkley. Josh Jacobs is a guy that fits in that bucket, only had 20 catches last season. We're projecting him here to bump to 42 this season. And, and John Gruden has said some things along those lines that he liked to get him a little bit more opportunities as a pass catcher. Uh, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire and DeAndre Swift are the closest of the like top running backs this season for that. They're a little light on the weight side of things, but I feel pretty good about them and feel better about them this season. This is some of the other backs like Jonathan Taylor in that mix. Taylor, by the way, almost never caught passes in college, 4.3% receiving ratio. And what was alarming about that was every single offseason – they hyped him up as a pass catcher. They said, oh, yeah, the head coach is working one-on-one with Taylor uh, on route running. Uh, the next season, they said the same thing. They were, oh, we, we spend an, like out five hours each week watching tape on the best NFL pass catchers. He's going to catch 60 balls this year, and then it like never materialized. So that's like a big red flag for me. I think he's already one of the best, top five best pure runners in the NFL. So like – if he could catch passes too, oh my God, watch out. But I, I'm not really holding my breath, at least not for, for year one. Uh, what, what's interesting is I actually don't, I don't knock guys who didn't catch passes. Uh, like LaDainian Tomlinson caught like what, seven balls his entire college career. It, it can be like a scheme thing. It can be an offense thing. Uh, but but uh, I mean, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire just set the, the SEC record for most receptions by uh, – an SEC running back. And and on that list were a bunch of wide receivers, uh, Dexter McClusser, um, Alvin Kamara, Arian Foster, Todd Gurley, LaMichael Pirine too, actually. But um, yeah, uh, yeah I mean, he's a guaranteed bell cow, absolutely going to destroy. LaMichael Pirine and Antonio Gibson are the two later running backs that, that met that 215 and 13% threshold. So maybe players that are options for you. I think Pirine is kind of being overlooked as a handcuff for Le'Veon Bell. Mm-hmm. Um, not not necessarily, like it depends on your league whether you would want to be looking at a handcuff in that situation, but he's somebody that I think is safe as that type of player could have fantasy value for you this year. Uh, one more question, Scott, that I want to get to before we let you go. And I, like, I, th- I think about projections a ton. Like that's something that I do for Football Outsiders. I kind of find it interesting to try to come up with ways to capture all the relevant considerations in the projected totals. And right now, our Kubiak preseason projection system uses like a value-based drafting algorithm. Um, so like it's, it's a typical way to do these sorts of things. 
And like, as an example, Tony Pollard and Ido Smith, two players with very similar projections right now, but subjectively, I think Pollard and Smith have different values and it's kind of based on my subjective opinions on what would happen if we were wrong about their projections. Say Ezekiel Elliott gets hurt for the Cowboys. I think Pollard would have a ton of success. You know, he had great broken tackle rate numbers last season. Seems like he would be a good pass catcher. Ido Smith, maybe more health concerns of his own, more options if Todd Gurley went down in Atlanta, maybe a less successful offense overall, hard to say. But to me, that's something that I would like our, our rankings to sort of capture and our projections to capture. But with just like a traditional value-based drafting approach, they don't really capture. Have you thought about that sort of thing at all? And is there a way in your mind that a projection system could sort of figure out what you're trying to do here, sort of subjectively comparing to ADP with with bell cows, with players with extra upside, like how can we bake that in so that the market can maybe catch up to that truth? Um, I, I don't really know. I, I'm thinking like, you know, make an injury risk mm-hmm. percentage and then uh, what, what percent, how much of that player's production would a Tony Pollard or Ito Smith capture in the case of that, um, it, if an injury were to occur, so like in Pollard's case, I'd give him like 85% of Zeke in yeah. Smith's case, I'd give him like 60%, 70%, yeah, 60% of, of Gurley. Um, I don't really know that I, someone asked me this. Um, and I said, you know, steal a bunch of rankings, like go to your favorite, um, like subscribe to all the different fantasy sites and then get their rankings and then take like, or take their projections and then take the top average, the top two projections for each player um, of the, of your, you know, 10, the 10 total projections you stole from. And then like, that's your upside projections. I don't know though. I, I I don't really, I, I haven't, I'm not a projection guy, like definitely not on your level. So I haven't given this a ton of thought. Yeah. I think we're, we're kind of trying to experiment a little bit with like dynamic valuations here. Cause like with somebody like Pollard, this ties into what we were talking about earlier a little bit where it's like with Pollard's upside, you're like, maybe he should be a fourth round running back. Um, but like that doesn't really make sense. Cause if you're, if you're drafting that early, you're still filling out your starting lineup. There's a lot of players that have similar, but like similar best case production, but a lot less likely to have a not that production. But it's like the deeper you get into your bench, the more valuable Pollard really becomes based on who you drafted. And not even saying that you drafted Elliott himself. It's just that like once you have more reliable options for running back, Pollard becomes more and more valuable to your specific team. It's something that's very difficult to distill into a single number. So, yeah, it's probably something that is a hard tangent to be talking about. But it's interesting. And I think it kind of ties into some of the work that you're doing, something to think about going forward in the future. Uh, Scott, why don't you tell us a little bit before you go about Fantasy Points. People may not be as familiar with it. It's a fairly new site, but has a lot of really cool stuff that'll help people both for their preseason drafts and for DFS this season. Uh, Yeah, fantasypoints.com. I left Pro Football Focus and uh, started this website with John Hansen, Graham Barfield, Joe Dolan, Tom Brawley, and a few others, um, putting out some some, uh, killer work. subscribe so you can read uh, my next big article, My Guys, which is just basically me just laying out who my must-draft options are. Last year in that article, I said uh, Lamar Jackson was the best value 
uh, bar none at any any single position, must draft. Um, I would call that a hit. Very successful <laughs> choice by you. <laughs> I, I also, uh, I actually also um, placed MVP bets on Lamar Jackson in three different months, but uh, I did it through the DraftKings app, so I got capped at like like five dollars each time because he was like eighty or ninety to one. But someone <laughs> someone read that article and won like seven hundred thousand dollars placing MVP bets on Lamar Jackson. Um, I like it. That's, that's not, a pretty good return on investment. Fantasy points is like $50 <laughs> for the whole season. So if, if you make $700,000, that's, that's well worth the subscription cost. Yeah, so everyone wants to know who my Lamar Jackson is this year. Yeah, I have no I have no idea. I don't think I'll ever ever get that lucky again. So we'll, we'll see. Hopefully, hopefully uh, one of these guys hits. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for joining the show, Scott. I thought this was great. And for everybody that is interested, check out fantasypoints.com. See Scott and all those other, like a lot of legends in the industry, really, kind of in one new place here. It's very exciting. So check that out. And thanks again for Scott for joining the show. Thank you. Well, thanks again for Scott for joining the show. I'm stunned that that went almost an hour. It was a fascinating conversation. Clearly lost track of time there. But I still think we can squeeze in some of these uh, one stat per player that we're going to do for the the top 60 wide receivers going 60 this time because of the depth of the position uh, in our Kubiak preseason projection system. As I mentioned last time, these are based on our PPR rankings, based on the Kubiak projections. You can check those out on footballoutsiders.com. But here are our top 60 guys with one stat per player. Our number one player is actually Julio Jones, maybe a little bit of a surprise to people, in particular because he landed a reputation as a bad touchdown scorer after having just three touchdowns in 2017. That season, he caught just two of 19 end zone targets, which is crazy low for a player of his height, weight, and skill set. Uh, but that really hasn't been a situation uh, or a problem for him going, going forward. He's caught nine of 20 end zone targets the last two seasons. Uh, so whether or not it was like Steve Skarkeesian's fault, his former offensive coordinator, or whatever it was, I think that that concern from the 2017 Super Bowl hangover season is gone. And that means that in my mind, Jones is a very safe player, a guy that's played between 14 and 16 games for six straight seasons, caught at least 83 passes, and at least 1,394 yards for six, uh, six straight seasons. Our number two player, Michael Thomas, probably number one in a lot of uh, places. He was definitely number one in PPR scoring overall last season. But interestingly, 8.0 yard average depth of target last season, very low for what you think of as being an outside number one type of wide receiver. That really isn't a criticism per se, uh, but I think it says a lot more about why he catches so many more of his targets than most players. He just sees a lot more catchable targets because of the types of routes he runs, maybe makes him a little bit less of a... I mean, he's still a tremendous player, obviously, but when he's differentiated from guys like Julio Jones and Devontae Adams, DeAndre Hopkins, to me, that's often a big reason why. Speaking of number three, we have DeAndre Hopkins. Uh, Borrowing from Mike Clay's 50 Things article, Mike says, uh, one more on Arizona. Wide receiver DeAndre Hopkins handled target shares between 26% and 34% during the past six seasons in Houston. So will Murray feed him the ball that often in Arizona? Probably. Consider that Christian Kirk was on the receiving end of 24% of Murray's targets when active last season. Larry Fitzgerald's target share was uh, 21% as well. And Hopkins is obviously the superior talent of that group and shouldn't struggle to come close to 31% rate for 2019. I definitely agree with Mike here, especially if you think that Murray is a player that has a chance to really improve in his sophomore season. Hopkins is a great value, even if he's less clearly the top guy than he was back in his Houston days. Number four, Devontae uh, Adams. 
Last year, five touchdowns against 7.2 opportunity adjusted touchdowns, so a 2.2 touchdown shortfall. That was top 10 fewest um, or, or the most biggest shortfall at the position. And he actually scored double-digit touchdowns in each of his previous three seasons before 2019. So I think last year, a little bit of a blip as a touchdown scorer. Adam should bounce back this season, and that makes him a top five fantasy option again for you at the position. Number five, Mike Evans. 21 drops on 256 catchable targets over the last three seasons. That number sounds probably a little bit bigger than it is because that's a three-season sample. But that 8.2% drop rate is three times as big as Chris Godwin's drop rate over that time. Just five drops on 186 catchable targets. So to me, that's a little bit of a differentiator here. Already having a little bit of concerns there um, with Evans. I think he's a good fantasy value, but there's a little bit of downside risk here in, in my mind here. Number six, Kenny Galladay, 8.8 opportunity adjusted touchdowns last season were the third most at the position. So just interestingly, we actually project Galladay to be the league leader in touchdowns this season based heavily on that opportunity adjusted touchdown number. And with Matthew Stafford presumably playing for more of the season this season, Galladay's a great value for you. Even in PPR formats, we have him sixth at the position. Number seven, Tyreek Hill. Uh, this isn't a stat about Hill specifically, but his backup, McCole Hardman, he ran a 4.33 second 40 time in the 2019 combine. That's almost as fast as Hill, who ran a 4.29 second 40 time, and you may remember was a track star in, in high school, uh, just one of the fastest players in the NFL. To me, their similar skill sets means that Hardman is actually a handcuffed wide receiver for Hill. That's something you don't see very often in fantasy leagues, a wide receiver with a clear handcuff, but I think Hill has one. In, in this type of year where you know we had the COVID risk that could lead to some late substitution requirements for you in fantasy, that actually maybe boosts Hill's value a little bit more, and it certainly makes Hardman a draftable player for you in your shallow leagues, even if to the start of the season he may not be a player you want to start immediately. Number eight, Chris Godwin. already mentioned the drop stat. Uh, but Godwin, nine touchdowns against 4.9 opportunity just to touchdowns in 2019. That 4.1 touchdown surplus was tied for the most of the position. So it's a situation where Godwin may regress a little bit from a touchdown perspective. Not enough to knock him out of my top 10, though. 32.8% receiving DVOA was the best among all receivers last season. He's a very good player. Maybe aligns a little bit better with Tom Brady's usage than Mike Evans does. But I think there's a reason to expect he may have a little bit less successful a fantasy season this year than he did last year. Number nine, Robert Woods, 5.6 average yards after the catch over the last two seasons, 11th of 72 wide receivers with 100 or more targets, and really not far behind Cooper Cup, who was number one with 6.3 average yards after the catch. To me, this is a situation where throw depth and maybe roll in the slot and stuff kind of leads this to being a situation where these receivers do really well. But I just want to point out that Woods, maybe because of his name, maybe because of his history in Buffalo, doesn't always get the respect that he deserves as one of the top receivers in the game, but he found a system that uses him on those shallow targets that really fit his skill set nicely in LA. I think that makes him a top 10 receiver in fantasy in my mind. Number 10, Calvin Ridley. 17 touchdowns against 9.1 opportunity adjusted touchdowns over the last two season. That 7.9 touchdown surplus is the most at the position. When we were talking to Mike last week about the players that maybe consistently overachieve on their opportunity adjusted touchdowns, Mike was pretty adamant that he thinks that sooner or later those players are going to regress. Ridley is a player that could regress because of that too, uh, although he's kind of in that Chris Godwin camp with a 30.6% receiving DVOA, second best of the position last season. Maybe somebody whose skill sets makes him safer by the nature of his targets, even if his touchdown number ends up falling. I feel pretty confident with him as a back-end wide receiver one uh, for fantasy this season. 
Number 11, Amari Cooper. Uh, the Cowboys drafting of C.D. Lamb, it seems like it could squeeze out um, all of the team's wide receivers, maybe make them a little bit less valuable than their ADP. But I do want to point out that Cooper had just a 20.7% target share last season, even though he played all 16 games for the Cowboys. That was just 23rd highest at the position. So he wasn't getting that like DeAndre Hopkins type of outrageous workload that to me would make it a little bit more of a question with the additional you know quality player there in Lamb for the Cowboys. So I don't think Cooper is going to lose out too much because of Lamb, at least not this season. So Cooper is number 11 for us at the position. Number 12, DJ Moore, 5.8 average yards after the catch over the last two seasons. That's tied for fifth best of 72 wide receivers with 100 plus targets. To me, he's a perfect fit for Teddy Bridgewater, a player that averages a very low average depth of throw. So I think Moore is going to be a player that really that thrives in fantasy in Carolina this season and probably as part of an offense that will have to throw a lot if they're down a lot in games. Number 13, Allen Robinson, 27% target share was third highest at the position last season, just behind Michael Thomas and DeAndre Hopkins and ahead of a lot of guys you think of as being those premier type of wide receivers. Uh, To me, with the Bears not drafting any wide receiver before the fifth round in the draft, Robinson still clearly has that role. He may not have the name brand value with some of the other guys, but I think he's definitely a top 15 option for you in PPR formats. Number 14, Cooper Cup. Uh, I I mentioned him a little bit and how he's got some good metrics there in that Robert Woods stat, but for Cup, 10 touchdowns against 5.9 opportunity adjusted touchdowns in 2019, that 4.1 touchdown surplus was tied for the most at the position. He actually had a very similar number of opportunity adjusted touchdowns as uh, tight end Tyler Higby, even though he scored something like six or seven more actual touchdowns than Higby. So I think that's something that's going to probably dock Cup's value a little bit as he regresses this season although clearly not enough to knock him out of the top 15 in PPR. It would knock him out in non-PPR formats, however. Number 15, Devontae Parker. A bit of a split here. For weeks one through six, 5.6 targets per game, just 46 yards per game. Remember, that was the time in the season when Josh Rosen was starting a lot of those games, and Miami really wasn't having a lot of success in the air. But from week seven to 17, after, um, after Ryan Fitzpatrick took over as the starter, Parker had 9.1 targets per game and 88 yards per game and was the number six wide receiver in PPR scoring at the position. To me, that's a clear, not a role change on his own, but a clear sustainable difference having Fitzpatrick at quarterback. So I I think I have a lot of confidence there in Parker. He's going to continue to have that success. He's number 15 for us in PPR leagues. Number 16, Keenan Allen, 2.7 yards of average separation versus 2.0 for Mike Williams. Williams was actually the second lowest of 125 players with 43 or more targets last season, according to next-gen stats. I talked about this a little bit with Scott Barrett, and how average yards of separation may not be telling you about a player's quality per se, but I think it does tell you about his role. And Williams was one of the deepest target receivers in the game last season, something that really made a lot of sense for fantasy success with Phillip Rivers. But with Tyrod Taylor, one of the more conservative quarterbacks in the league, I think it's a situation where Williams is going to get hurt a lot more by the quarterback switch than Allen is. And so we actually still have Allen as a top 20 option for you at the position, 16th in PPR. You'll find out that Williams gets docked a little bit harder later on in this uh, conversation. Number 17, Tyler Lockett. Just four drops on 190 catchable targets over the last three seasons. That's a 2.1% drop rate, fourth best of 164 wide receivers with 50 or more targets in that time. But more uh, striking, I guess you could say, is that DK Metcalf had more drops last season, five, than Lockett's had over the last three seasons. Metcalf's drop rate isn't necessarily alarming. He had 63 catchable targets, so 7.9% 
drop rate, not ever 10% where I get really, really scared, but something to keep in mind to me, it's the reason why Lockett is still the better fantasy option of the two, although not, not too much better as you'll quickly find out. Number 18, Adam Thielen. Another one here that I'm stealing from Mike Clay's 50 Things article. Wide receiver Adam Thielen played at least 80% of the Viking snaps in 18 games in 2017, 16 games in 2018, and 9 games in 2019. His target share was right at 26% during each of those stretches. Especially with Diggs gone, Thielen is positioned for a huge role and is a great post-hype sleeper for 2020, according to Mike. Number 19, bouncing back to Seattle, DK Metcalf. He actually had seven touchdowns against 9.6 opportunity adjusted touchdowns last season, a 2.6 touchdown shortfall, third highest at the position. So, I mean, even though you think of Metcalf as having this crazy touchdown scoring season, he's the type of player that really could get a lot of end zone targets. He's six, six foot four, 229 pounds. I think Metcalf justifies the hype. It's a top 20 value in my mind, even with the fact that Lockett is probably better than him in fantasy this season. Number 20, Odell Beckham. Four touchdowns against 6.2 opportunity adjusted touchdowns in 2019, 2.2 touchdown shortfall. That was one of the top 10 highest at the positions. I think he could bounce back both from a touchdown scoring perspective and from the fact that Cleveland's offense will probably be a little bit better, if not a lot better, with Kevin Stefanski calling those plays. So I have an optimism that that Beckham can bounce back, although 20th at the position, maybe not the heights that you would have assumed when he left the Giants in the first place. Number 21, DJ Chark. Uh, His yards per target increased by 6.8 to 9.0 with Gardner Minshew at quarterback last season. A bit of a smaller sample there with Foles, but it makes me kind of happy to see that given that Minshew is the unquestioned starter for the team this season. I think that Chark can sustain the the big breakout that he showed in year two last season. We have him 21st at the position. Number 22, A.J. Brown. Brown averaged 4.4 more yards after the catch than expected given the depth of his passes, the highest rate by a receiver with 50-plus receptions last season. Brian Knowles, a Football Outsiders writer, wrote about this on the site about a month ago. He mentioned that only two other receivers have ever even reached 3.0 yards after the catch, plus 175 catches in a season. So Brown had a hugely unsustainable success after the catch last season. I think that's something that's going to really knock down his efficiency this year. Obviously, Brown is going to get more targets this season because he'll play the full season, barring any health issues. But to me, the regression is going to counterbalance a lot of those target gains, which is why we have Brown outside of the top 20 in an offense that's really more based on the run than the pass in any case. Number 23, Michael Gallup. 15 drops on 116 catchable targets the last two seasons. 12.2 or 12.9% drop rate was the 10th highest of 126 wide receivers with 50 or more targets in that stretch. To me, it's a little bit of a concern. I mean, I think in the long term, Lamb is going to be taking this, uh, taking Gallup's place as one of the top two receiving options on the Cowboys. It may not happen this season, and we have Gallup rated higher, but I think Lamb, being the number one playmaker score wide receiver in this draft class, probably a better talent than Gallup, probably better hands than Gallup, could be a factor in the long term. Number 24, Christian Kirk. 6.5% DVOA from the slot, negative 11.5% DVOA out wide so far in his career, but kind of a 50-50 split, 50.8% slot percentage so far in his career. To me, Kirk is a player that makes a lot of sense in the slot, especially now that DeAndre Hopkins is in town. That's a role that Larry Fitzgerald has traditionally played for the team in the back half of his career. And I think that makes Kirk sort of the heir apparent to Fitzgerald. Uh, And it's a situation where I think Fitz may end up being a bit of a loser in terms of workload with Hopkins in town, more so than Kirk, as the the probably superior player in that role 
given their relative situations in their career at this point. So we have Kirk as a top 25 player in PPR um, at the position, and Fitzgerald takes a little bit of a tumble given the overlapping skill set there. Number 25, Cortland Sutton. His targets increased from 7.8 to 8.0 per game with Drew Locke at quarterback last season, but his average depth of target decreased from 11.9 to 10.2, and his yards per target decreased from 9.7 to 7.0. So not a huge sample size there with Locke at quarterback, just five games, but something to keep in mind right there. Uh, Locke wasn't really forcing the ball down the field to Sutton, and I think that's sort of a subtle reason why we have Sutton a little bit lower uh, than, than other places might have him. Also, too, just... The, the tons of skill talent that, that the Broncos have brought in over the course of the offseason could change it so that Sutton isn't quite the heavy volume wide receiver one that he was last season. Number 26, T.Y. Hilton. Phillip Rivers threw 1.92 catchable deep targets per game in the last three seasons. That's the ninth most at the position, whereas Jacoby Brissett threw just 1.07 last season. That was 33rd of 34 quarterbacks with 200 or more attempts. This is a totally revolutionary change uh, for the for the Colts offense and for Hilton specifically as a deep threat. This could really bounce back his fantasy value if he can stay healthy this season. We have him 26th at the position. Number 27, Terry McLaurin, 40.9% DVOA from the slot, 7.1% DVOA out wide, but just a 33% slot rate last season. In contrast, his teammate Steven Sims, 91% slot percentage, but negative 32.2% DVOA from the slot. To me, I'd love to see the the Washington football team kind of reverse roles a little bit here. Use McLaurin a little bit more from the slot. Let Sims with his speed run a few more deep routes. I could see that happening this season, and I think it's actually a reason that McLaurin is fairly safe as a top 30 option. Obviously, there are not a lot of other great weapons right now for for that team, but if he's working a little bit more from the slot, expect to see a little bit higher target volume than even he had last season, even if the efficiency per target declines. Number 28, Juju Smith-Schuster, probably one of our bigger differences from, the, from overall ADP and other rankers, but something I'll point out with Smith-Schuster in his career, his slot DVOA from his rookie season has kind of carried his perception as being a very effective player. 59.3% slot DVOA that season has dropped to negative 0.6% and negative 1.3% the last two seasons, and his out-wide DVOA has always been a lot less. 6.5% as a rookie, 13.8% as a sophomore and negative 23.1% last season. I'm not gonna hold Smith-Schuster's declining numbers from last season against him. Obviously the quarterback situation was pretty terrible uh, for the team, but that slot rate, I don't think that's necessarily sustainable because I think that Deontay Johnson is gonna be spending more and more time from the slot going forward, given his effectiveness and lack of size. So Smith-Schuster's gonna have to sort of prove it for the first time that he can be an elite wide receiver on those out wide routes. Could be tough for him, Um, and for me, that's why he's not in our top 25 at the position. Number 29, Jarvis Landry. Uh, Landry had 139 targets last season, which is actually seven more than presumed Brown's number one target, Odell Beckham. It's a player that's a lot safer than he gets any credit for being. Maybe doesn't have Beckham's upside because the touchdowns may not be there, but safely in the top 30 in PPR formats at the position. Number 30, Marvin Jones. Jones is one of just eight wide receivers with 25 or more games played the last three seasons and at least half an opportunity adjusted receiving touchdown per game. Here are the other wide receivers on that list. Antonio Brown, DeAndre Hopkins, Mike Evans, Devontae Parker, Odell Beckham, A.J. Green, and Julio Jones. Very, very, very good list. 
Obviously, Jones himself has been hurt, and Stafford was hurt through a lot of last season, and I think that's kind of pulled him out of mind. Maybe the fact that his name is Marvin Jones pulled him out of mind a little bit, but he's a player that if he and Stafford are both healthy, you're definitely going to want to have him in your lineups, and he is going for a great ADP value right now. We actually have him in the top 30 at the position. Number 31, Stephon Diggs. Uh, We list Diggs as a green injury risk uh, because he's never missed significant time with any injury in his career. But of note, Diggs has not played 16 games in any of his five professional seasons, missing either one, two, or three games in all uh, all five of those years. Something to keep in mind with Diggs, depending on the format you're in, may be a little bit less valuable than you would assume because he gets dinged up a little bit and it's been a problem in his career. Number 32, Robbie Anderson. So I mentioned about Teddy Bridgewater's low average depth of throw earlier, and it's obviously a very worrying sign for Anderson's fantasy value as more of a deep threat. But I'll point out that Bridgewater, he's played for very conservative coaches in Mike Zimmer and Sean Payton, and those coaches, other quarterbacks kind of in in Bridgewater's era, have had very similarly low ADOTs. Kirk Cousins, 7.4 average depth of throw for the Vikings. Breeze, 7.2 the last two seasons. Uh, so it's possible that Bridgewater's low average depth of target has, says more about his coach's strategies than it does about his skill set. He actually threw a pretty accurate deep pass last season, 56.5% accuracy percentage on throws 16 or more yards in the air downfield. That was fifth best of 34 quarterbacks with his total number of attempts. So I think there's a chance that Bridgewater could open it up a little bit more for the Panthers, not necessarily projecting that. But that's why we have Anderson as a top 40 wide receiver at 32 at the position. Number 33, Tyler Boyd. 8.2 targets, 6.1 catches, and 80 yards per game when A.J. Green has been healthy in games over the last two seasons. Just 6.8, 4.2, and 62 without him. So I think you can make a clear case that Boyd is more valuable in fantasy when Green is playing, even though you would think that Green would hog more of the targets, which he probably does. But to me... That means that Boyd is a little bit safer than you might assume, even given the fact that the Bengals have really improved their wide receiving depth this offseason. Still our number one choice for the team in fantasy this season. Number 34, Deontay Johnson. Hit on this talking to Scott Barrett earlier, but that 3.46-yard average separation, according to the next-gen stats, it may have been the best among wide receivers, but it's really in the same range as guys like Albert Wilson, Hunter Renfro, Christian Kirk. Those guys are all at 35 Robert Woods, Nelson Aguilar are both at 3.4. To me, that, that stat says a lot more about his usage as a low-depth target than it does about his skill set. I still think Johnson has a chance to be a really good player, should be good in fantasy this season if Ben Roethlisberger can make it healthy through the season. But just don't get carried away, I would say, on Johnson's efficiency in a stat that's pretty new and that we may not really have a great sense of what it means for players. Number 35, Julian Edelman. Uh, Cam Newton aggressively pushed the ball down the field through most of his career, but in his last healthy season for Carolina for the first half of 2018, he had a more conservative offense through just 8.8 yards average depth of throw, and he actually increased his career completion percentage, which is a 59.6%, to a career-high 67.9% completion percentage. Uh, That's a career-high by more than 8%. So it's a situation for, for Newton where... I think he's demonstrated there that he has the ability to play a more conservative style offense, which he'll probably have in New England. And that I think that means that Julian Edelman's like floor value is a little bit higher than you might assume making the transition from Tom Brady. As such, we have him 35th at the position in PPR formats, somebody you can probably still rely on in your lineups. Number 36, Mike Williams. 
I mentioned a little bit about how he may see a ding uh, because of Tyrod Taylor's unwillingness to throw the ball down the field. But what should counterbalance that a little bit is the fact that Williams had just two receiving touchdowns last season against 7.3 opportunity-adjusted touchdowns. That 5.3 touchdown shortfall was the most at the position. Number 37, Michael Pittman, rookie for the Colts. Uh, He was only 12th in this wide receiver class in playmaker score, but we have him as our top rookie for this season in PPR fantasy because of his role. We think Paris Campbell is going to probably play from the slot, which locks Pittman in as one of the two outside starting receivers along with T.Y. Hilton, a very enviable position with Phillip Rivers there at quarterback, someone willing to throw the ball down the field. So Pittman has a little bit more value than you would expect given his draft position. Number 38, Emmanuel Sanders. 97.1% catch rate on his catchable targets uh, the last couple seasons. That's the third highest of 80 wide receivers with 50 or more targets. Uh, Thomas was actually at 94.9%, 13th highest. So again, kind of pointing to what I mentioned earlier there about Thomas having those outrageous catch percentage numbers on all targets, probably influenced a little bit about where he's seeing his targets. Sanders has tremendous hands just like Thomas, probably will eat into Thomas's workload a little bit, although not enough to make Thomas a bad option in fantasy by any stretch. Just saying that, that Sanders himself is a good option as well in the top 40 in PPR in my mind. Number 39, Darius Slayton. Eight touchdowns against just 4.2 opportunity just down uh, last season. That 3.8 touchdown surplus was tied for third most of the position. Somebody will probably face some regression this season. Why we haven't backed up here to 39th of the position. Number 40, John Brown. 14.5 yard average depth of target. One of the higher numbers in the league. Actually very similar to Stephon Diggs at 15.0 average depth of target. So a little bit of overlapping skill sets here between John Brown and, and Stephon Diggs. And for me, that makes Brown the likely loser. Diggs seems to be the more talented player based on their career efficiency numbers, uh, like DVOA. So Brown down to 40th at the position for us this season. Number 41, Jamison Crowder. 24.7% target share was actually 10th highest at the position last season. He's the guy that may be getting a little bit overlooked with some of the bigger additions in the Jets' uh, wide receiving core, Brashad Perryman, the draft pick Denzel Mims. I think Crowder is probably the most valuable of that bunch, in particular in PPR formats. Number 42, Curtis Samuel, 14.2 yard average depth of target last season. Um, I'm curious if he may see his role change dramatically with Robbie Anderson in town, maybe the more traditional type of deep threat, a little bit of a taller player. I don't feel like the Panthers have totally figured out the right way to use Samuel, kind of a smaller player, but very fast, quick as well. Hasn't really worked totally well in the slot or out wide so far. His career kind of reminds me a little bit of Tavon Austin so far. Probably not a comparison that you're looking to, to make. He's obviously had better numbers and better touchdown numbers than Austin ever did. But I think there's a bit of role uncertainty, probably why there's been trade rumors about him. And that's why that we have him uh, the lowest of those three main Carolina Panther receivers in fantasy this season, 42nd at the position. Number 43, A.J. Green. This is again from Mike Clay's 50 Things article. Prior to sitting out all of last season, A.J. Green's target shares by season during his active weeks are as follows. 25 percent, 31%, 30%, 30%, 26%, 30%, 29%, and 25% since 2011. So that's major usage. Green may turn 32 this season, but he seems like a good bet for roughly one-fourth of the Bengals' targets when on the field and is a solid fantasy starter. To me, Green is one of those players outside of our top 40, the position, that when he is healthy, you're going to feel pretty comfortable starting him. And so 
I think that's a player that maybe makes sense as a bench wide receiver for your team. If you can get him at that point, somebody that you'll be comfortable playing when he's healthy. It's just that, you know, the question with Green at this point, obviously, is always health. Speaking of health, our number 44 wide receiver, Will Fuller. Uh, And a situation here with the Brandon Cooks addition and the DeAndre Hopkins subtraction, there's a lot of overlapping skill set here in Houston. Fuller, 14.1 yard average at the target last season. Cooks, 13.1. And even Kenny Stills, 13.6. You can make a case that all three of these players are really more natural deep targets as opposed to just traditional out wide targets the way that Hopkins was. To me, that makes it a little bit of a question which one of these guys will emerge. Randall Cobb may actually have sneaky value as more of their slot target and having a differentiated skill set from these other guys. And as such, even though you've got uh, Deshaun Watson throwing them the ball, we don't have any of the Houston wide receivers in the top 40 in PPR. Fuller is our best at number 44. 45, Rashad Perryman. Uh, One drop on 53 catchable targets over the last two seasons is just a 1.9% drop rate. That's the fourth best among 126 wide receivers with 50 or more targets. I think we think of Perryman as being a high-risk player because he was sort of a post-hype player, former bust as a top draft pick who had just one good season last year for the Buccaneers. But I think his consistency on the field makes him a little bit safer in my mind. I think the Jets probably have a little bit more distributed target share than, than you would expect. But Perriman as a top 45 option in PPR, I'm on board, and I think he has a lot of upside there. Number 46, C.D. Lamb. Not the most valuable of our rookies in fantasy this season, but was the number one wide receiver in Football Outsiders Playmaker score. I think over the long term, Lamb will probably have the best career. The goal really for you in fantasy is to not assume that all of that career will happen for you this season. So kind of a modest placement here is the 46 wide receiver in full season rankings. Number 47, Marquise Brown. Seven touchdowns last season against just 4.8 opportunity adjusted touchdowns. That 2.2 touchdown surplus was tied for 12th most at the position. Now, it's a case that pretty much everybody in the Ravens had a surplus of touchdowns because Lamar had such an insane season last season. So maybe he'll be able to sustain a little bit of that surplus going forward if Lamar is that different kind of special player. But I think it's a little bit risky to assume that that's going to happen. So even while Brown is probably going to see more targets this season, I think he could offset that a little bit in fantasy with a a smaller touchdown rate than he showed as a rookie, which is why we have him at just 47th at the position in PPR. Number 48, James Washington. 11.2% DVOA in 2019 was the best among the main wide receivers on the Steelers. Negative 8.9% for Deontay Johnson, negative 11.3% for Juju Smith-Schuster. Washington, as the deep threat, probably has the the worst fantasy role, but I think that he may be the best player of that bunch. Um, Not necessarily. I think really all three are probably pretty good, and who knows about the rookie Chase Claypool as well, but there's enough uncertainty for me in this offense such that I think it damages all of their value. So that's why we have uh, Juju Smith-Schuster down in the late 20s. We have Washington in the late 40s. It, it may be a situation where all of that value congregates in Ben Roethlisberger, and it's tough to start any of those wide receivers uh, in like a DFS-type format. Number 49, Brandon Cooks. Uh, Deshaun Watson threw 2.18 catchable deep targets per game the last three seasons. That's the second most behind only Patrick Mahomes. Uh, Goff threw just 1.31 of those catchable deep balls last season, 26th of 34 quarterbacks with 200 or more attempts. He may not be the number one guy in Houston's offense, but I think it's a great style fit for Deshaun Watson's skill set. So Cooks is somebody that you can draft as maybe in the late 40s here who has upside for more. He and Fuller both, one of those players could have a very successful fantasy season.
Number 50, Sterling Shepard. Shepard has reached six targets in all of his healthy games in 2019, so he could be useful when he finds the field. But the stat here is that Shepard also suffered two concussions last season and has an extensive history of them dating back to his high school days. So Shepard, kind of in the A.J. Green mold of things, although for different reasons, a player that you can maybe start in your PPR formats when he's healthy, but just have some concerns about his health driving down his fantasy value here. Number 51, Sammy Watkins. Six touchdowns against 5.7 opportunity adjusted touchdowns the last two seasons. That 0.3 touchdown is a surplus, but it's noticeably smaller than the other Chiefs' main wide receivers. Tyreek Hill has a 6.7 touchdown surplus. McCole Hardman, 4.3 touchdown surplus. Demarcus Robinson, 2.9 touchdown surplus. And Chris Conley, uh, 1.3 touchdown surplus in just one of those seasons with the team. I think it's fair to say that Mahomes is the best quarterback in football, is probably going to be driving a touchdown surplus over expectations based on his depth of throws. And I think that actually means that even though he showed a small surplus, Sammy Watkins will probably enjoy better touchdown fortune this season than he has the last two seasons. As such, he's, he's number 51 for us at the position, even though you might be tempted to draft somebody like Hardman before him. Number 52, Debo Samuel. Really only here because of the, the injury that could bleed into the regular season. But I'll also point out that nine drops on 66 catchable targets in 2019, that 13.6% drop rate was fourth highest among the 80 wide receivers with 50 or more targets. So some concerns to me that there could be some skill-related problems here. If somebody like Brandon Ayuk comes in there and just kills it in a similar role, that may take away from Samuel's future if he's unable to convert on a higher percentage of his catchable targets going forward. Number 53, Golden Tate. His average yards after contact has declined from 6.8 in 2016 to 6.7, 5.8, and then 5.7 last season. So you're saying, oh, you know, Tate's getting older. It's probably his skills are diminishing. I'm not actually sure that's true because his ADOT has kind of fluctuated a little bit as well. It was higher back in 2016 at 8.0, dipped to 6.0 and 6.5 the next two seasons. Last year, jumped back up to 9.6. To me, yards after the contact, uh, contact and, and ADOT tend to have an inverse relationship. So the longer down the field you're catching your passes, usually the less after contact uh, or after the catch yards you're going to accumulate unless you're like a really, really fast runner, which Tate isn't. So to me, what I think we're seeing here is Tate's role is being changed a little bit as he's changed teams, changed quarterbacks, that sort of thing. Uh, but I think it's safe to say that, that he can still be productive this season, especially with Daniel Jones potentially improving as a passer. So we have him still pretty decent value here, 53rd at the position in PPR. Number 54, Alan Lazard. Just a 9.5% target share from weeks 6 to 17. That was comfortably second on the Packers, but not in the top 70 among all wide receivers in football. So he may be the second wide receiver that you're looking at for the team this season after they didn't address the position much during the offseason and not at all during the draft, but maybe not a guy that you want to consider a top 50 option nonetheless. Number 55, Hunter Renfro, 7.9% DVOA as a rookie. So very solid, efficient player as a rookie. To me, that means, in my mind, he's not unworthy of a starting role, despite the fact that the team has improved their, their wide receiver core in drafting Henry Ruggs, a player I'll mention in a second. Um, but I'm not too worried that Renfro's role is going to go away this season. Number 56, Deshaun Jackson. He's missed two or more games in four of his last five seasons. So kind of in that A.J. Green camp of players that you're probably happy to play uh, when he's healthy, but we don't have him in the top 50 of the position based on that health, health risk for the Eagles. Uh, number 57, Henry Ruggs. 
So I mentioned a little bit with Renfro's effectiveness, but I'll point out too that Renfro had a 99% slot target percentage in 2019. To me, I don't really buy the talk that Ruggs is going to be working out of the slot pretty heavily this season. As I see things, I think he makes more sense as an X-type receiver. That's the receiver that lines up the furthest from the tight end in offensive formation, uh, and he's the player that isn't allowed to go into motion. So for a player of that role, you really need a guy that can beat that press man coverage with speed and quickness. To me, Ruggs fits that perfectly. It's kind of what Antonio Brown was supposed to be for the team last season uh, before that mess sort of happened. Uh, So in the long term, I think that's probably a good thing for Ruggs, that he's going to be in that position rather than a slot receiver. But at least for this season as a rookie, that may cut down the number of targets he sees and may make him a little bit less valuable than Hunter Renfro in your fantasy leagues. Number 58, Denzel Mims. Uh, Mims is actually a big receiver, six foot three and 207 pounds, kind of similar to Brashad Perriman at six foot two and 220, or 215. So there's a little bit of an overlap in skill set there that I think could maybe hurt both of their potential in fantasy this season. Again, that's why we have the slot wide receiver, Jamison Crowder, as the top value among those players in PPR formats. Number 59, D.D. Westbrook, a slot man as well, but hasn't really been very efficient so far in his career. Negative 21.5% DVOA as a rookie in 2017, negative 15.7% in 2018, negative 21.8% in 2019. So to me, D.J. Chark is really the number one option for the team. Very clear to me with Gardner Minshew there at quarterback. That makes Westbrook outside the top 50 at 59th of the position in our PPR rankings. Number 60, Jerry Judy. Uh, He was the number two wide receiver in playmaker score, comfortably ahead of Henry Ruggs, um, even though they weren't drafted necessarily in that order, um, and was actually more productive at Alabama as well. So, you know, it wouldn't stun me if if Judy was the more productive player here than than Ruggs in his first season. We have him a little bit behind, but really that says more to me about the Broncos' um, surplus of skill talent between Cortland Sutton and Noah Fant and some of the other rookies they have coming in there. A lot of talent, but I think Judy's going to be a very successful player. Number 61, little bonus guy for you here, Preston Williams. 15.3% receiving DVOA from weeks 7 to 9 after Fitz took over and before Williams himself tore his ACL. He averaged 8.2 targets per game from weeks 3 to 9, kind of bridging multiple quarterbacks there. He's really one of my favorite sleepers this season. With the losses the Dolphins have had between their opt-outs and everything else, Clearly the number two wide receiver for this team. Um, As a former undrafted player, I think he's a little bit off of radars, but somebody in particular in your deeper formats you should take a look at. And then we'll close this up with number 62 in Keel Harry. Uh, Harry was a former multi-sport high school athlete. And for me, that can make him a little bit better fit with Cam Newton uh, than he was with Tom Brady. Uh, When you kind of entered that freestyle type of play situation, Brady tended to throw the ball away, looking to avoid the big mistakes from a sack, say, from an interception. But Newton has that versatility as a runner, can kind of move around inside and outside of the pocket. I think that could lead to some more playground type of plays where he can throw up deeper passes to Harry. And Harry has the skill set to come down with those and maybe have a little bit more success than he enjoyed as a rookie in his sophomore season. Okay, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Football Outsiders Fantasy Podcast. Thanks again for Scott Barrett of Fantasy Points for joining us. Hope everybody enjoyed it. Be sure to subscribe uh, to the Football Outsiders Fantasy Podcast and rate and review it on your preferred podcast medium. And then next week, we'll uh, be back with probably another guest, maybe previewing the, the quarterbacks for your league. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you then.
Let's go. 